Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It's my great honor to be here with Scott Graham, Associate Professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing and faculty affiliate with the Center for Health Communication. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Frederick. It's great to be here to talk with you. My gosh, Scott, I have like gazillions of questions about you, your work, but um, gosh, I know you're deep into the AI. You're like people, you know, your phone must be ringing off the hook right now. Um, Machine learning, communication, uh, rhetoric, all of the, all of those things, bioethics, all of your work, um, so so important. But before we get into the kind of details on this, tell us a little bit about. My goodness, you you got your BA Eckerd College back in '03. Philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, you make your way to rhetoric and professional communication at Iowa State University, both MA and then a PhD in 2010. Um, Took a position at University of British Columbia, then University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and then in 2018, you joined us at UT Austin. But what, so philosophy, but you know, where, where did you like, how did that become a thing for you? Was it were you reading Plato as like a five-year-old? Um, but then how did this lead you to sort of rhetoric and writing? And yeah, tell us a little yeah. bit about uh, your journey. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. It's, uh, you know, a, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of happy accidents along the way. Um, so I was certainly not reading Plato as a five-year-old. Um, I like to think I was a smart kid, but I wasn't that smart of a kid. Um, but, uh, I was really interested in, uh, you know, just thinking about deeper questions in, in high school. I was a member of the debate team. So I, you know, I like to argue about moral questions. And, uh, so that, that really led me to philosophy early on. Like that's the major I declared as a first year student at Eckerd. And, um, it's, it's what I thought I would do, right? I had this sort of vision of becoming a philosophy professor when I started down that path. And, um, uh, it, you know, I went a different path for a number of reasons. Um, so I really enjoyed my philosophy training. I got a lot out of it. Um, it was, you know, as some folks know, um, even though the distinction is eroding, there's kind of a historic distinction between continental and analytic philosophy. Uh, in continental, the continent in question being Europe, tends to focus on um, um, mainland European, French, and German thinkers, and analytic philosophy is the Anglo-American tradition, more or less. And I, it's very rare for a program in philosophy in the U.S. to be focused exclusively on continental philosophy, but mine was. And so it when I got towards the end of my graduate st- or my undergraduate studies, I realized that if I wanted to keep studying what I was studying, there were very few places in the U.S. in philosophy uh, at that time that would really support the the thinkers that I wanted to work with, the things that I want to do. Um, I also was really interested in coming up with ways to apply 
the philosophical questions that I was working with. And even though since then I've learned that there's a lot of great applied areas in philosophy, like bioethics and empirical bioethics, um, I didn't know about those in undergrad, right? I didn't know there were options. They weren't things that my faculty members had a lot of expertise in. And so um, I, I took a gap year and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do that would um, leverage those things that I liked reading, those things that I liked thinking about, but in a kind of more applied way than I thought at the time philosophy could do. And so uh, here's the first happy accident. Um, I was kind of thinking rhetoric might be interesting because it, it engages with the philosophical tradition a lot that has very applied dimension. I was kind of thinking psychology could be interesting for the same reasons, has a clear applied dimension. Um, and so I decided to open and enroll in a rhetoric class and a psych class at Iowa State to see which one's going to fit me. Anyway, the psych class was full, so here I am. Um, that's, that's the kind of first happy accident. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the rhetoric class just spoke to me, and I just doubled down on it, you know, within within a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Scott, what? Let me let me just ask you for mm -hmm. some of our listeners that might not be in the know on this, just in a just kind of off the cuff, what's your, how do we distinguish, first of all, continental from analytic? Mm. And, and then second, um, and maybe relatedly, what is this field of rhetoric? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm nervous to give you a good answer on continental versus analytic, not being a card carrying philosopher, but um, some of the, the, the through lines are um, in the history of Western philosophy. Um, there tends to be several major sub areas of inquiry. So metaphysics is about the true nature of reality. Epistemology is about how we know what we know. Um, aesthetics is about questions of beauty. Ethics about questions of morality. And one distinguishing feature of the analytic tradition was it really narrowed in very specifically on logic and epistemology um, and, and treats some of those ways of thinking as the primary modes of philosophy. And at least according to my undergraduate training, the continental tradition was more likely to engage in the whole broader swath of historic philosophical traditions. So, um, you know, aesthetics um, still being part of it, um, for example, in a way that it, it does crop up in analytic, right? These, these is not a hard dividing line at all, right? So these are broad tendencies that kind of distinguish the areas. And so rhetoric, um, so way back in ancient Greece, rhetoric and philosophy were coextensive. The same people were doing both. Plato has works on philosophy and works on rhetoric. Aristotle has works on both. Um but essentially, the rhetorical tradition in the West focuses on practical communication, uh, argumentation in um, political spheres. So how do members of a democratically elected assembly debate and discuss what society is going to do? Uh, legal spheres, right? So how do lawyers advocate for their clients or for a conviction? Um, and in the sort of in the public sphere, how do we as a society negotiate matters of ethics, matters of put praise and blame, right? So these are our stump speeches, our media, and, uh, there's certainly a rich tradition of argument and discourse in philosophy, but 
Historically, it has focused a lot more on that type of argument that is meant specifically to get to the truth, like deep philosophical truths. And so rhetoric is the all the argument in everyday life, if you will. Wow, um, Scott, for off-the-cuff responses, that was pretty extraordinary. Um, let me ask you then, with your first book, The Politics of Pain Medicine, and then the subtitle, A Rhetorical Ontological Inquiry, uh, Rhetorical Ontological Inquiry, um, it seems like you are bringing this, this impulse and need for an, an applied ethics together with your um yeah your your work your passion your deep scholarly inquiry into the the field of uh rhetorical studies especially in and around this new field or this field of pain medicine can you tell us talk us through this yeah uh so in some ways um what i really love about rhetoric is it provides us with a rich lexicon and set of approaches for thinking about practical argumentation. And so this is really interesting to me in a space like interdisciplinary pain medicine. Pain's complicated. The best pain scientists have fraught and competing definitions of what pain is. You can think in your own life, like we call pain when you accidentally touch a hot burner on a stove or when someone dumps you. That's both pain, but those are two very different experiences. And so uh, pain is both fraught because it's physiologically complicated, because it has powerful psychological dimensions. And then, of course, it's also politically fraught when you think about things like the opioid epidemic, overprescription. Um, there's a lot of issues um, philosophically, scientifically, and um, politically that circulate around pain. And so when pain is being approached in a rigorous and robust way, you get experts from everywhere. So you get your MDs, your neurologists, your um, interventional anesthesiologists, you get chiropractors, you get nurses, you get psychologists, you get politicians, right? All these people coming from radically different perspectives, radically different areas of disciplinary or practical training, and they have to talk it out and they have to make sense of this thing that is pain and what we should do about it in the world. And to me, that's a fascinating rhetorical problem because they're all being driven by these different, different foundational perspectives on what pain is and what we should do about pain. Uh, and so that's the rhetorical part of the inquiry. But historically, rhetoric, as I mentioned before, has really been focused on language and argument. And so it, it, it has a lot of robust tools for how we talk about language and argument. How do we describe different tactics of debate? Uh, but there's a real physical dimension to pain, right? It, it's one of the most physical and embodied things that there is. Um, and when you're talking about the science of pain, you're talking about working on real human bodies with real scientific experimental methods and I don't think you can fully capture what it means to think about pain if you only talk about the language of pain. And so where I bring some of my philosophical training and rhetorical training together there is to try to talk about the underlying reality of pain, the many different types of pain, and the ways that we argue about pain at the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, and I know you've written also on the uh, opioid crisis. Um, and later in a minute, we'll be talking about kind of the way AI has been 
uh, rhetorically manipulated, if you will, to incentivize. And of course, pain is one of those as well, right? So, you know, what better way for a politician to kind of galvanize and incentivize than in and around something like pain, right? Common experience of pain. I was thinking about the the train uh, wreck that just happened in Ohio and how we're seeing, um, I'm sure you've been very, you know, interested in this coming from your perspective on uh, re- rhetoric and philosophy, but yeah, how it's been incentivized, right? Um, let me ask you, while we're on the subject of rhetoric of health and medicine, one, what is that exactly? And two, I know that you co-edited rhetoric of health and medicine as is. Um, yeah, can you t- tell us, uh, me and the listeners, what this is, rhetoric of health and medicine? Yeah, so it is, it's a very broad, very flexible, subdisciplinary area, um, mainly folks who are trained in rhetorical studies, but also folks from communication, um, occasionally philosophy or bioethics participate in this area. And essentially, it is a question of so much about health and care and medicine is determined by how we argue about these things and how we talk about these things. So if you think about something like the moment you see a doctor, you and the doctor are having a linguistic exchange, a discursive exchange about what's going on in your body, um, about what might help if there's an issue that needs to be addressed. And, And although it all has real bodily and physical consequences, most of what mediates that interaction is language. Um, you might add some lab tests in there, but the the fundamental unit of the clinical encounter is talking. And so that's where a lot of this work started is like, okay, how do pa- patients uh, express their needs to physicians? How do physicians um, onboard patient needs and values try to suggest the best course of action, but without being manipulative about what patients should do, right? So there's there's complex language and argumentative dynamics there. And then since then, rhetoric of health and medicine has also expanded to talk about health policy. So when the FDA is debating whether or not a new drug should be approved, there's a very language at the center of that. Um, the FDA has this advisory committee program that are literally um, like court trials. Like if you think about lawyers arguing about whether or not a drug should get an approval, there's a pro team, there's a con team, there's cross-examination. And this is a huge part of whether or not a drug gets approved it happens in these argumentative tactics. And so this is basically, these are all these places where language is super prominent in health, health policy, in the culture of health and health policy is where rhetoricians of health and medicine do their work. And so we try to understand how the arguments are unfolding and how they're changing the practice of medicine or particular health policies or the culture of care. Yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, I was uh, just in the doctor's office yesterday and the delivery, the doctor's delivery or say story of what they found um, and the diagnostic um, generated fear in me, right? And 
kind of almost a shutting, an initial shutting down um, and an inability to articulate or to engage with that story um, to kind of figure out how I could solve or be a part of, you know, bringing the story to a resolution. Yeah, and this is a a critical question that's an ongoing question, because obviously um, there are some very unfortunate histories in medical practice of physicians not treating patients, especially minoritized patients, um, female patients, uh, you know, in the best ways, and in fact, often in actively harmful ways. And at the same time, um, a lot of folks you know, you go to a doctor to get the expert information to get guidance on what you should do to be as healthy as possible. And so it creates these sort of challenges about how to communicate in that concept because it's it's scary information, which can and sometimes inhibit your ability to make good choices. But we also have seen the dangers of creating an environment where the doctor just makes choices for you. And so again, this this very complex intersection of philosophical moral issues and tactics of persuasion it, there's no easy resolution here right there are there are guide rails that we can put on that encounter there are active conversations that academics and clinicians need to have to figure out how to handle all those complexities in a moral way but also in a way that leads to the best patient outcomes yeah you know the initiatives and centers programs i'm thinking about medical humanities uh reader sharon's work and and many others really trying to clear or create spaces for medical providers to be in the same room with uh humanists right um hoping that you know somehow we can shift that that delivery shift the way we hear and listen um you know because we need to we need to um as you mentioned um i know for instance culturally speaking you know with my my latino mexican kind of dad any any information no matter how beautifully delivered say the the story of his body and his health he was his automatic response is skepticism mm-hmm. um you know, you're just trying to get me to spend more money on medicine, <laughs> um, more tests, more et cetera, et cetera. So there's the cultural element too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are communities that have a long and adversarial uh, history with American medicine, with Western medicine, and that's certainly not going to go away overnight, right? And while I think there are some areas of improvement, um, You know, we're seeing uh, some of the concerning dimensions of healthcare uh, and its relationship with minoritized communities um, rear its ugly head again as AI is coming on the scene. And so uh, it's this is something like like any issue that's fraught like this that we're going to have to reckon with and re-reckon with over and over again as a society and hope that we do so in ways that lead us to a more just and equitable world. Well, this is a beautiful way to to move us into your most recent book. I know we've leapfrogged uh, one of them, but I think this is important, the sort of bioethics, bioscience, health policy that you are committed to in your work. Um, 
And the book in 2022, The Doctor and the Algorithm, Promise, Peril, and the Future of Health, AI. So this is, like you were saying, you know, AI, it's here. Um, And I know that you've been, you know, your phone's been ringing off the hook um, because of your your particular um, expertise in this intersection of, say, ethics or applied ethics and machine learning machine um, making. So this particular work exactly goes into the areas of medical futurism and inequitable outcomes. So let's, yeah, let me hear about all that. Yeah. So uh, obviously AI, there's so much excitement around it in every sector and health and medicine is no exception. Um, For the last several years, health and medical AI has been either the single largest or basically in the top two for venture capital investments in the U.S., right? Billions and billions of dollars at stake. And one of the biggest tensions that we have out of it that's that's one of the causes for real danger here is the, you know, the culture of Silicon Valley has often been the old retired Facebook motto, move fast and break things. Uh, and that's proven dangerous enough with social media, with misinformation, disinformation, um, body image concerns that all arise from these algorithms. Um, but it's even to being more terrifying when you apply it to a health and medical space, because moving fast and breaking things is moving fast and breaking people. Uh, and that's something we have to avoid at all costs. Now, I describe myself as AI cautiously optimistic. As you mentioned, I use some machine learning in my own work, and I can absolutely see ways in which that can improve healthcare. But my real concern in the book and my real concern broadly is that it has to be done closer to the timelines of medicine, right? So rigorous clinical trials are how we evaluate whether or not healthcare interventions are safe and effective. And you can't just roll out a new technology when lives are at stake and say, hope this works, right? Just just far too dangerous. And it's, it's also what leads to a lot of the inequitable outcomes because most of this technology gets developed at um, leading academic medical centers. Um, so you think of things like the the med schools that support, uh, the, the hospitals that support the Harvard Med School or Dell Med School, um, right, that they often serve a wealthy clientele. Um, they often aren't always um, located in um, very diverse areas. So one of the most popular small data sets for initially learning about health AI is the um, Wisconsin breast cancer data set. And it was curated at the Academic Medical Center in Madison. And I love Wisconsin. I used to live in Wisconsin, but if you go to Madison, you'll note that it's not necessarily the most diverse town in America. And so that data set is a slice of the people that you expect to live in Wisconsin primarily. And if we're using data sets like that to train AI systems to then deploy all over the country, it shouldn't surprise us that they don't work when we move them to more diverse hospitals, to low-income hospitals. Absolutely. You mentioned something along the way here, Silicon Valley is moving fast and breaking things. Um, and, you know, social media as well as something very deeply 
um, a part of our lives. I have a teenage daughter. I know that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those difficult things as a parent, you know, do you, for the longest time I was like, no, 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 but then everybody's got it. And, but then once you're on it, you know, there are these kind of body social kind of images and so on. My, I guess this is kind of getting me to some of the things that you teach Scott, Mm -hmm. um, you, um, and, and work on, I mean, you work on tweetorials you've written on this misinformation, inoculation, literary support, tweetorials on COVID-19. Uh, you talk about in another piece of yours, opioid use and stigmatization, destigmatization in social media, um, AI for social justice. Um, and you also teach you know, classes, you know, some of your courses on, you know, um, digital humanities, tech writing, and so on. Let's, let, let, can you explore with me then tutorial, social media, um, r- your work coming out of rhetoric? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so again, you know, with my um, interest in health and medical rhetoric, um, what I tend to do when I study social media is study how healthcare providers or health policy experts or epidemiologists, how they use social media, what they say online. And I've done this in a number of different contexts. One context is looking at the early days of covid Everyone was desperate for information. Nobody knew what was happening. Uh, We were scared if we were paying attention. And so Twitter became a fascinating resource for both good and bad information about COVID and about what was happening. Uh, And the tutorial, especially the literacy support tutorial, um, is, I think, really fascinating. So what tutorials are are basically just a thread of tweets. So rather than one 280-character tweet, five to 10 of them stapled together um, with an educational message. So it comes from, you know, uh, tweet plus tutorial smashed together into one word. Um, and they've been around since before COVID. Um, there's a fam- semi a Twitter famous, I guess I would call it, uh, epidemiologist, uh, Ellie Murray, um, who's been doing these a lot and teaching about the basics of epidemiology, the basics of causal inference and statistics, um, uh, before COVID. And so this way of communicating on social media was ready to go when COVID hit. And it provided a great way to explain to people what was happening, what we know, what we don't know. And then the literacy support variant is um, basically nobody likes to be told they're wrong. And we tend to throw up um, psychological defense mechanisms when, we, when we're when we told that we're wrong. And so one of the biggest problems with misinformation and disinformation is if you learn an incorrect fact and then someone comes along and tries to correct it, those defense mechanisms kick in. You're like, no, I know what I know, right? Like, I, I wouldn't be fooled, right? Nobody likes to think of themselves as the kind of person that could be taken in. Uh, And so the inoculation theory of misinformation is basically about trying to, as soon as possible, get out foundational information, basic literacy information, so that when you encounter misinformation, you've had a little bit of background already and you can better um, say, nah, that doesn't seem right to me. And so it's been really exciting to see 
epidemiologists, physicians putting out these sort of literacy support tutorials that are like in the early days of COVID, you know, let me tell you what an R naught is. You're going to see this number and somebody's going to say R naught of 13 and should you be scared or not, right? And so providing that foundational information um, goes a long way to blunt misinformation and disinformation. Uh, but then I'll transition a little bit into that other article you mentioned. It's a double-edged sword. So um, in our study of stigmatizing and destigmatizing language on social media, we, we looked at a bunch of physicians and healthcare providers and health policy experts to see if they were talking in stigmatizing or destigmatizing ways about people who use drugs. And this is really important because there's a lot of research that shows if physicians stigmatize people who use drugs, then they're less likely to get care, not only for like uh, an opioid use disorder, for example, but for anything, right? They, they just think doctors are going to judge me all the time. They don't go see doctors and that's dangerous. And so it's really important that uh, healthcare providers use destigmatizing language so that people who use drugs feel comfortable getting healthcare. And so we wanted to map this on Twitter and see where people, where physicians and healthcare experts really using this language that they were supposed to be using. Um, and what we found uh, is over time, it was getting better and better and better. And then COVID burnout reversed the trend, or we're, we're guessing that it's COVID burnout. But when COVID hit, people started to be a lot more stigmatizing about people who use drugs. And we think that's because of all the demands that COVID put on the healthcare system, right? To be intentional about your language, to be careful about your language and making sure that you're not inadvertently offending someone, that takes, you got to think about what you're saying, uh, especially if you, you know, we have a, a culture that's historically stigmatized people who use drugs. So we were taught at young ages as part of our D.A.R.E. programs to to be sort of dismissive of people who use drugs. And so uh, it, it requires a lot of cognitive availability to make those good linguistic choices. And if you burn out, you don't have it and it slips. Yeah, being intentional about our language takes work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and also being intentional about our learning environments, our classrooms, our teaching, right? So tell us a little bit about your intro to, I don't know, digital humanities, um, tech com and wicked problems, uh, apocalyptic tech writing. I want to take these classes. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, basically uh, what I teach and it's across any of these classes is an extension of what I research. So I'm really interested in um, the way technology figures in society. And so oftentimes, uh, and maybe in some other disciplines, when you're learning about technology, you learn about the nuts and bolts of it. You learn about how it works, what's under the hood, how it was put together. And I think that's all fascinating information. I teach some of that information in my courses, but I'm interested in uh, what I'd probably like to teach about the most is the social dynamics of change. So when a new technology gets dropped in the world, where do the ripples go, right? Um, who benefits? Who doesn't benefit? What regulations need to be enacted as a result of that new technology? Um, technology is fundamentally connect connected with society, with culture, with our daily lives. Um, 
And, and if we just think about the widget, we miss those connections. And so uh, uh, another way of thinking about the broad umbrella of what I like to teach is the sort of critical technology appraisal, right? So we're clearly living in a world where we're going to get new technology dropped on us all the time. You know, chat GPT just hit the world by storm. And I think it's really important to uh, give students the tools to know, okay, here's this new thing. How is it going to affect the broader world, not just me? Where can it be beneficial? Where can it be harmful? Because if all we do is teach about the tech that exists right now, we're not equipping students for the tech that, that we haven't even considered its existence yet. So that's that's kind of the, the the big umbrella of my teaching approach. So in any of these classes, we look at things like um, new technologies or new infrastructures. So in the Wicked Problems class, we actually focus on the, the wicked problem of Austin traffic, right? So if you've driven around this town, you know it's a mess. Um, and there are a whole lot of technological solutions being offered to make it better. So if you've seen the new... Um, uh, the new interchanges they're putting on I-35 where you drive on the wrong side of the road for a little bit because that speeds traffic. Like it's very uncomfortable, but it turns out if you reduce the number of left turns people make, the traffic flows better. So we look at these things and look at the systemic effects of traffic. We talk about proposals for the new I-35 running through neighborhoods, taking out businesses. Um, so that's just one example. Really? Yes, we 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 need help. <laughs> in Austin, that's for sure. We need help in in urban cores, in urban spaces um, generally. Scott, when you're not bringing a balanced, more deeper understanding to new technologies dropped in our lives in the world, such as AI, what what are you what are you doing? Um, what are you reading? What are you watching? What's grabbing you right now? Um, and where are you thinking you might be going with your work um, in the future? Great questions. Um, yeah, so uh, I should probably um, cultivate a little bit better work-life balance, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, when I do, um, what I read and what I watch is maybe a little too close to my work. So I'm interested in a lot of science fiction because it reflects on the same issues of dropping technology into spaces. And so, um, God, what have I, you know, recently I've been rereading some things. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the, um, uh, the atrocity archives Does that ring a bell to you. No, so, uh, no. yeah. Uh, author Charlie Strauss. Um, and it's this very strange series of books where it turns, he's, he's, diving into some fundamentals of some of Turing's discoveries in computer science. Um, and then the fictional element, he takes this huge weird left turn where he says that at a certain level of computer programming, it's basically magic and you can do magical things in the world. And that's the, that's the fictional conceit of the book. But I think it's an interesting way to think about how technology permeates our lives and how we talk about the magic of technology. Right. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not a serious book. It's a fun book to read, but there, there's some depth in the, in the, some of the, the sophistication about the history of computer science that gets brought into, into the book. So that, that's one thing that jumps to mind. Um, uh, in terms of the future of my work. So I'm, I'm certainly going to do some more with, uh, 
AI and uh, the language of AI. So one thing I've been working on a lot lately is um, all the hype, because I think AI really can help health and medicine, but I think that it's being oversold right now. There's so much enthusiasm for it that we're adopting technologies that are dangerous or that don't do that don't work as advertised. And usually the recommended solution to that is that we need to keep close to the science, right? That if we look at the PR, we look at the marketing, we look at the venture capital, it's it's overly promissory. And if we keep close to the science, then, then we should be okay. But some of my research is showing how the science itself is often hyped, right? That there's extravagant language in some of the foundational journal articles on these new health AI technologies. And um, I'm exploring the ways that in, in some ways, it looks like some of the underlying research designs that are used to evaluate if a new health AI technology is a good product, that if you measure how good it is one way, you find more hype in the articles than if you measure it a different way. Um, and so I think that, yes, we do need to keep close to the science. We do need high quality, rigorous um, approaches to assessing if this technology works. But if you can measure it in two different ways, both which are equally quote unquote accurate, but one that makes people hype their product more, then we should think about maybe um, some foundational guidelines, either in peer review and publishing that would encourage people to measure it the way that doesn't lead to exaggeration. And we know when there is billions of dollars being pumped into this stuff, that mm -hmm. there is clearly an incentivizing uh motivation right um to get us to buy into the hype and mm -hmm. to jump on the bandwagon scott um what can i say this is your work your work also on you know really ambitious work to carve out a unified field of uh rhetorical you know approach to all things um, is really incredible as well. I know you published on that um, in your book from 2020. But let me just end by saying um, this. Thank you, Scott. I mean, that basically make you know the kind of critical, critically optimistic um, position, or what maybe we could say an eyes wide open, critical optimism that you bring to your work to the world, to the questions um, that drive your research and your own passion. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to do it. And I'm glad to do it in a, in a space like this in particular. Um, so many of these conversations these days are happening on Twitter. And there's a lot of cool stuff on Twitter, but it's not a place for nuance. Right? It tends to get pithy, polarized statements. And so I always loved being able to talk with anybody in a venue that allows these kind of questions and allows for the the answers that are not easy. The answers that are not easy and that you do, do such an incredible job at kind of re-articulating for, for all of us to understand better, you know, why they're not easy and why we need to continue to kind of ask those important, difficult questions. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time.